Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We'd greatly appreciate it. Also make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures. And we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. All right. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We are uh, grateful that you're, you're tuning in. Let me encourage you, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com. Check out uh, the website there and, and uh, supporters get a lot of free bonus content. Also want to mention, I'm going to be at Theology Beer Camp in Springfield, Missouri, October 19th through the 21st. And we will be uh, hanging out with about 30 theologians, 30 podcasters, and some musicians as well. And um, as we do that, you can join us. Uh, you can go to my website, spiritualadventures.com. You can go there. You'll see a code. You can save money on the tickets. Love to have some friends join me. Uh, Trip Fuller's hosting that. He's the host of, uh, Christ, uh, what is it? Uh, homebrewed Christianity. And so uh, this, as Tripp would say, this is theology that does not suck. <laughs> so I promise you <laughs> that, that we'll have some fun if you come. All right. Well, hey, today we've got David Gushy with us. And uh, did I get that right, David, this time? Gushy. Gushy. Gushy yeah. Gushy. Uh -huh. Okay. David Gushy. And man, um, I'm going to let David kind of introduce himself, but he is a scholar. He's a professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University in Georgia. Um, we have a lot of our history that crosses over because um, we both have some Southern Baptist roots, right? So, yeah. um, and we both uh, are have reflected on our evangelicalism quite quite a bit. I'm actually writing a memoir right now, David, that um, actually will kind of overlap some of the stuff in your, in your book that we're going to talk about after evangelicalism, the path to a new Christianity. And so we're going to talk about that, but also he has a, a new book that's just releasing next month in October. I might have to invite you back for that one. That'd be cool. But, yeah. Yep. He's an author, uh, pastor, scholar, teacher, professor. Um, thank you for joining us, David. It is good to be with you. It's good to know you. And uh, to know, <laughs> I have uh, a brother from another mother, it seems, you know, halfway across the country. Um, and if we if we wanted to spend an hour saying, do you know, do you know this person? Do you know that person? I bet we would have lots and lots of people in common. So anyway, nice to meet your, your listeners and I'm happy to be in conversation with you. You bet. You bet. So let's let's give just a little bit of context for those who don't know you, kind of your family spiritual background and give us give us a give us like your five minute uh, your 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 origin story in a in a nutshell. Sure. Um, I uh, was born in Frankfurt, uh, Germany, um, when my father and mother were over there. Dad worked for uh, the American Chemical Society. So I was a Cold War era baby born in West Germany. Um, uh, when I was uh, born shortly after my parents moved uh, to Northern Virginia and my dad worked in Washington all through my uh, growing up years. Um, my mom was a devout Catholic. My father had been uh, a Baptist, had been an active practicing Christian in high school. Went to MIT, became a chemical engineer, kind of a 
I gather, lost interest in Christianity at that time. Um, had a miserable first marriage. A couple years after that ended, he, he and my mom met, and she put him back together again. Um, it's a, quite a story. That's my, that's my kind of romantic origin story. Mom and dad's love brings uh, life out of death for my dad. And then I was the first one born. We have three younger sisters. Um, so we, we were raised Catholic. How much? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they came along fast, two years, three years, and then, and then eight years. I have yeah. three younger sisters who are five, six, seven years younger than me. So, and we're, man, that's crazy. I know. Yeah. All right. Um, and, um, so I was raised Catholic. Um, uh, it was a happy home. Um, dad was into his work doing energy and environmental stuff. Mom, um, was mainly a homemaker taking care of all of us kids. Um, dad wasn't terribly helpful with the religious upbringing cause he wasn't involved. Um, I became a, um, kind of spiritual seeker post Catholic after I left after confirmation and I just wouldn't go back. Um, but very much um, spiritually oriented kid. When I was 16, I wandered into a Southern Baptist church because I was dating a Southern Baptist girl. I went without her, though. She was on vacation. I went on my own. And uh, a few days after that, through a series of events, I had a conversion experience and became a dripping wet, newly baptized 16-year-old convert. That was in 1978. And I, I found community meaning, identity, and vocation in that place. Mm. That's a lot. I would also say, yeah, community, meaning, identity, purpose, direction, vocation. So within six months, I was sure I was called to be a Baptist pastor. Um, I was in there. Every time the doors were open, they taught me the Bible. They taught me little bits of this and that kind of theology. It was a Southern Baptist church that had fundamentalist influences as well as somewhat more moderate influences, both in that church. Um, I was then all in with the Southern Baptist. I went to William Mary and ended up being in the Baptist Student Union where I met my future wife. Um, Is William Mary Southern Baptist? No, no, it's a state school. Yeah, I thought however so. much I was into the Baptist, I wasn't going to be going to a Baptist college because my parents were not not doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a cool place, though. William and Mary. Yeah. I in Hampton, Virginia, for three years on staff at a Baptist church. And we'd always go up to Williamsburg and hang out. You know, yeah, it's a great place. Cool um, place. They did a great job reclaiming that area and making it a tourist destination. And the old school, uh, basically Ivy League quality school, um, yeah. great education there, majored in religion. Uh, did so well that I could have gone anywhere for a master's and PhD, but I was convinced I had to go to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, because that's what we did. You know what I mean? Um, I went to Southwestern, so, you know. Yeah, could have been Harvard, could have been Yale, could have been Vanderbilt, but I went to Southern, which I've often regretted, but but it was where I was at the time. Um, but... Uh, I discovered a Did mentor you named Div at Southern. Uh, yeah, I mean, Southern. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I discovered a mentor named Glenn Stassen, who was probably the most influential Southern Baptist ethicist at that time. He became a dear friend, and you know the role of a teacher. Uh, he was like, uh, "Oh, okay." He was so excited about his work. I became that excited about the work, and my calling refined to be an academic and to be an ethicist. So I was also quite sure I was done with the South and with Southern Baptist for a while. So at the end of that, I went to Union Seminary in New York. Right. <laughs> yeah. Very big, different. Big departure. <laughs> big departure. Uh, liberal slash radical was the range. Liberation theology was the rage. Um, and I did a dissertation on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. Um, those yeah. years... That's fascinating to me. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. It was a time when everybody was thinking about the Holocaust, especially in New York. Um, Schindler's List came out during that time. The Holocaust Museum was being developed. Jewish Seminary was right across the street. There were Holocaust survivors everywhere in New York. Hmm. I'd always been interested in the Holocaust. Um, 
And studying the Holocaust uh, was a formative moral and intellectual and spiritual event for me. Mm. Um, wrote a book that became my first book. That was my dissertation. And that got my publishing career launched. Um, anyway, at the end of my PhD, I was working with a man named Ron Sider at Evangelicals for Social Action. I got a job there. Had a, had three kids by then, needed to support my family. And um, Ron became my second most influential mentor. And he taught me a progressive evangelicalism that I really liked. That was when I learned to identify as an evangelical. Um, he was a Canadian Mennonite a totally atypical evangelical, but but he was a, a role model and a friend and a mentor. Anyway, when all of that was over and I needed a job, the only place I could get a job was at Southern Seminary, just as Southern was making the turn to Al Mohler being the new president. Yes. And I was able to squeak in and get the job conservative enough for the new conservatives, progressive enough for the older faculty. I just barely made it. Had a miserable three years there, but it got my job, got my career launched, and I've worked at two other schools, uh, Union University in West Tennessee, which was slightly less conservative, maybe, and now Mercer University here in Atlanta and Macon, which is much more open. Mm. And uh, so, so um, evangelical convert, Southern Baptist convert. Um, the The formative event that a lot of people know me for is that in 2014, I left all of that behind when I wrote a book called Changing Our Mind, calling for full LGBTQ inclusion. Mm. And that book is probably the most influential book that I've ever written. And at that point, it was all over with the evangelicals. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so I've been in a post-evangelical space since then. And that's a lot of what I write about now. Yeah. And write for. It's who I write for and who I hang out with. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm still confused, you know, but anyway, no, I'm not, I'm not that No, it's just that I was well, anyway. Um so curious um let's let's chat a little bit about this this book, but the the LGBTQ stuff is interesting to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um but I I'm curious uh so when I went to Baylor, you know, here I was the saved Southern Baptist kid being discipled by you know, models that come out of like Campus Crusade, Navigators, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, But I land at Baylor in 79, David, and like literally all of my, and I was, I was a double major religion and business. I was feeling called to be a pastor and, um, you know, came out of the recreational drug crowd. Even though I was an athlete and a good, and a good student, you know, but I was still like to get high. And, uh, I went to Baylor and like all of my religion professors at Baylor were what I would call European classic liberal theologians. I mean, we're reading Schleimacher, Tillich, Bultmann. I was even reading the process guys, you know, Hartshorn, Whitehead. and Yeah. And I had, I wasn't like, uh, I, I love my professors. They were super kind I just kept like when it came to the reality of uh, demons or something like that. I like I thought I had had a few, and then uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you know a resurrection of Jesus. I was pretty sure I got safe. So what was interesting is I ended up gravitating toward what I'd call like conservative scholars who are still really good thinkers. I mean, like today it may be like an N.T. Wright, like a Tom Wright, right. you know, kind mm-hmm. of guy. So that's kind of where I gravitated. Um, I love to read. I love to study. I mean, I, I remember thinking about process theology at the time and like going, huh, this is interesting. It's like God's, God's evolving with everything else, you know, yeah. I always loved science. So I was never, I never had this, I was always trying to integrate science and faith, not, not make them in opposition to each other. So there were all things that were intriguing, but in the end, I kind of landed in more of the conservative uh, side of that camp. And then when I was at Baylor, uh, one of my friends was trying to set me up with, uh, a well-known Southern Baptist daughter. And I remember I was actually at his home and he was reading his daughter's textbook and we were sitting around the table and he's getting mad at the textbook cause it's too liberal. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the guys that started that whole conservative yeah. takeover in the Southern yeah. Baptist convention. 
And you know, what was interesting was when I went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Russell Dilday was the president. And I would say most of my professors were moderate, what I'd call moderates at Southwestern, which seemed way more conservative than my liberal professors at Baylor. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? I know all that, that landscape. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I, I love my professors at Southwestern, but what's funny was I kind of got into the charismatic uh, Southern Baptist world, like the uh, Jack Taylor, Don Crosslands, Peter Lords. I don't even know if you remember any of those guys, but it's not really my subculture. But I was aware of it vaguely. Uh, you know? yeah, yeah. And it was kind of fringe. So when I tried to start a Southern Baptist church with the home mission board, they turned me down because I was, even though I wasn't Pentecostal, I was too charismatic. Right. Mm. Can I say a word about, about that educational pilgrimage for a sec? Yeah, please. Um, you and I would both have been marked by the story that followed from that. Um, the, and it's a kind of a world that we're still living in. The Southern Baptists were a big tent. There were 15 or 16 million of them. They were knit together by programs, but there was a lot of diversity. The universities and the seminaries were where Southern Baptists of a variety of different backgrounds met each other, and and and, and I know, and you would have experienced this too, that that the more conservative or fundamentalist Southern Baptists were pretty freaked out by what was happening in the more liberal precincts of like religion departments, like I guess how Baylor was when you were there. Yeah, definitely. Reading Schleiermacher, Bultmann. Or whatever that's not exactly what southern baptists were thinking that their kids were going to be exposed to if they majored in religion at a baptist university right right um and that's european liberal theology okay yeah and then you go to a southwestern or a southern and it was more moderate that was my experience too hmm. um maybe you dip into you know carl bard or whatever but that's a different kettle of fish right right um and if you did read Bultmann or somebody like that, it was to understand, but it wasn't like kind of, oh, we're now going to become all good Bultmannians here at Southern Seminary or something, right? Mm-hmm. But the the rage on the conservative side that the Baptist schools that were being funded by cooperative program dollars and by good Baptist families were teaching a liberal theology and the rage that sometimes more conservative families and kids felt that they were treated like they were yokels that fundamentalists were treated like they were idiots that contributed to the conservative energy for um for the takeover of the denomination that we both lived through yeah i um i i uh, have always understood i think that rage and have tried to do work that is respectful of people who are more conservative than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also thought that real, that evangelicalism at its best was neither kind of Bultmannian liberalism, nor was it rage addict fundamentalism. It was something better than that. It was more like anti right. And there were good people in that space. But I feel that a lot of time, a lot of ways that space has disappeared in the last few years. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, especially the recent double down against women in ministry. Ah, that's right. You know? um, but in this book, um, I, I, I loved it, by the way. I'm writing a memoir. I'm thinking like some of the stuff I was, you know, I'll be writing in my own way. It, it definitely crosses over with, you know, your top, your your chapter on God, sex, all those things. Yeah. I, when you were talking about the history of evangelicalism, I had a, I had a quick question for you because, and it relates to what, the comment you just made, like I would have I always thought that the original impulse of evangelicalism was that fundamental impulse, that reaction against modernity and the liberal European, uh, you know, scholars. And so, and what was interesting, some of my friends would call fundamentalism and liberalism, the, just the, the same coin, just different sides. They're both, they both tried to adopt modernistic uh, philosophical underpinnings, but then defending, you know, different positions with a, with a modernistic view kind of a thing. I don't, you know, that 
I don't need to go there. But my, my point was that I thought by the time Carl Henry came along and then later Billy Graham, that for me, like I was never a fundamentalist, you know, Baylor and Southwestern cured me of that pretty quickly. Right. Right. But I would have considered myself an evangelical and by that I would have been more ecumenical when it came to my, you know, I didn't think all the Catholics were going to hell. I didn't think everybody that didn't agree with me was going to hell. You know, I didn't have that. I was a bit more of a Christian ecumenic, but not in the sense of the world council of churches. Right. 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 But in the sense of maybe the, that impulse of Billy Graham, where he, and you know, where he embraced all the Christian denominations and that, that seemed to be more, a more fresh approach to me. So uh, like a lot of my friends now that are post-Christian, post-evangelical, they just see the whole evangelical enterprise as fundamentalist, right? Mm-hmm. Or even cultish. And, and I totally understand that. Yeah. But when I was in it, I didn't, I would have been, I would have not thought of myself as a fundamentalist, but I wouldn't have thought of myself as a liberal either. And so that NT right space yeah. was where I found myself. And uh, today, evangelicalism, I think, has taken on a whole different, shift with the Trumpian era, right? Right. Yeah. And it doesn't even mean anything. I mean, it's, it's not even something, but anyway, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts yeah. on that, you know? Um, it's the, the history is more complicated than, um, than a lot of people think, but, and there's like a European and British and U S and Canadian versions. And they're all a little bit different, you know? Um, the way I tell the U.S. story is that the Protestants were developing a kind of a two-party system by the early 20th century of fundamentalists on the one side and modernists on the other side, the fundamentalist-modernist controversy. Mm-hmm. The modernists tended to be um, in very similar to um, to the European, the way things were developing in the European universities and Germany and so on. Historical biblical criticism, accepting the theory of evolution, accepting that doctrine develops under historical conditions, um, open to the world of modern intellectual thought, having to, to take seriously the increasing challenges to theism and to Christian morality offered by people like Nietzsche, right? Um, <clears throat> so engaged with the modern world and its questions, the fundamentalists um generally looked at all of that as horrifying um uh double down on some version of biblical inerrancy and uh fundamental beliefs that must never be negotiated or reconsidered um and the development of a subculture that would be safe for traditional doctrine and traditional kids to you know to be raised in right mm-hmm. um the the mainline denominations in the U.S. were generally the victory in that fight was won by the, the liberal side, by the modernist side. And that became the origins of mainline liberal Protestantism and the National Council of Church World and World Council of Church World. Mm-hmm. And that was where people like Tillich and the Niebuhr brothers and so on were ha- had their home and had their dominance. Right. Yeah. Um, and the headquarters in New York at the at Riverside, you know, in that area, all of that. Um, Is that Fosdick and all of Fosdick and the preachers like that, Harry Emerson Fosdick. The the fundamentalists had that kind of self-devouring brittleness that happens on the right wing. Are you conservative enough? Are you fundamentalist enough? Are you affirming all the proper beliefs? Um, A lot of of that. And by the late 30s, early 40s, there was a group of fundamentalists that – thought that that was not where they wanted to be. They wanted to do something more open than that, um, less heresy hunting, more engaged with modern ideas, and they wanted to rebrand themselves. And eventually, these were the people who rebranded as evangelicals. Mm. Um, And the birth of the National Association of Evangelicals in 1942 was a big moment for that. Um, They also, by picking that term eventually, they were not. They did not start off with that term, but by picking that term, they were trying to connect to what they considered to be a, a longer heritage, the gospel, the evangel, mm. um, the Reformation with Luther, the 
renewal movements in Methodism in, in the UK or uh, Pietism in, in Europe. Um, uh, the Wesleyan, uh, even the I mean, some of them really like the social social justice blend of a Wesley that was, you know, um, uh, others were really more turned on by reformed hardline doctrinaire stuff like Calvin and Kuiper and people like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they but they wanted to form a coalition that would be a new way, a third way, and <clears throat> where they could kind of glide over doctrinal differences, focusing on what they had in common, and they could build institutions and take leadership of American Christianity. And that was people like Carl Henry and Charles Fuller, and eventually Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. And thus, modern U.S. evangelicalism was born. Mm-hmm. It it wanted to be different from fundamentalism, mm-hmm. but it definitely did not want to become mainline liberalism. Right. That's right where I was at. Yep. You know? And it, it built a subculture of institutions, mm-hmm. personalities, publishing houses, parachurch organizations, Campus Crusade, Navigators, InterVarsity, Yep. Wheaton was already there, but rebrands as evangelical. Fuller was a new seminary. NAE was new. Christianity Day was new. Yep. Youth for Christ. All of that. I mean, that's me, man. That's an 80-year-old subculture now. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I argue in the book is that there were some pivotal moments where doctrinal disputes emerged among these evangelicals. Had places like Fuller, for example, over exactly how the Bible was going to be described, or over uh, atonement theories or whatever. And those doctrinal disputes tended to be resolved, unfortunately, in the same way that fundamentalists used to resolve doctrinal disputes. We're going to draw tighter lines and exclude people who are a little bit outside them. Mm-hmm. That's what the Southern Baptist uh, conservatives did as well. Yep. Maybe write new doctrinal statements ever more strict. And and this is a story that is told especially well by my friend Isaac Sharp in his book called The Other Evangelicals. You should talk to him. Isaac Sharp, The Other Evangelicals. Okay, I'm going to write it down. Um, people who challenged them from other angles also got the same treatment, like evangelical feminists or black evangelicals who were not happy with the relative indifference or caution about the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, or uh, um, eventually, of course, uh, gay evangelicals. Um, but Or even politically progressive evangelicals like uh, Jim Wallace, Ron Sider, and Tony Campolo. Right. All of them eventually got the same treatment. You're not quite okay. Right. Or worse. Yep. So Isaac's book um, shows that there that evangelicalism was actually dominated essentially by straight white American conservative men. And every time they were challenged on anything having to do with any of that, militarism, nationalism, Americanism, patriotism, gender, race. Uh, political progressivism. In other words, how about straight, white, conservative, Republican, nationalist, militarist men? And when they were challenged, they would always say, well, your problem is theological, you're liberal. But they were being challenged sometimes on grounds of justice or, or inclusion. And the end result was the gradual shedding or exile of all of most of those people. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading Cider, Wallace, you know, Kemp- I always love those guys, you know. Yeah. And, and they so much wanted to be understood as evangelicals. And I understood for, that way. Yeah. For Ron, especially, who was a dear friend, it was evangelical this and evangelical that, partly because he did not want Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and James Dobson and John Piper or whatever later to define what evangelicalism meant. Yeah. But I would say that by now, that wing is almost extinct. Oh, I agree. Because evangelicalism has 
has shrunk and turned right and hardened and the influence of Trump and Trumpism has been a big part of that story. Yeah. hundred percent. I just went through Jesus and John Wayne. <laughs> yeah. My dear friend, Kristen Dumay. Yes. I, I would really like to get her on my podcast for sure. Golly. I wish I could, I wish I could force that down every evangelical friend's throat that I have, but I can't, you know, sorry, friends, if you're listening, but <laughs> everybody needs to read that book. It's read one it. Of the read it. It's books. so yep. well-written. It's historically accurate. And God, it's what a, a really great example. She shows not only that polite complementarian patriarchy has prevailed, but also toxic masculinity in the extreme. Not everywhere, but as embodied by people like, well, Mark Driscoll. Um, and and that the Trump story and the attraction to Trump doesn't make sense without knowing that piece of it. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. So uh, two things, you know, we could, oh God, I could talk to you for hours, man. But <laughs> the so, so scripture is an interesting one for me. And then I want to have some time to talk about sex. You know, I always like talking about sex, you know, so I lost my, always. I lost, always my, I lost my mega church pastor job over sex, you know, so got to talk about sex. And then, um, and then I want to get to your new book as well. So um, and, you know, if you want to dive deeper, we could maybe do another, we could tie it, find another time to go into some of the other areas as well. Because, I mean, I I really want people to think about what's going on in the book after evangelicalism. So it's something to think about, too. Yeah. And yeah. I, I still have an evangelical audience as well. So, you know, really? I, I, yeah. I, I, I led thousands of people to Jesus, you know, and, and uh, some of them yeah. still, still hang out. Still listening to you, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, the, the scripture thing was always, you know, like, you know, at Baylor and Southwestern, you, you, you learn very early that, you know, you know, the argument, like, let's say the uh, Chicago statement of inerrancy that, you know, that I read and, you know, there's a lot of comments in that, that I actually like, you know, uh, some of the, some of the statements in that Chicago statement mm -hmm. are, I can resonate with, but the whole argument is founded on original autographs right which we don't have right right yeah. and most most people sitting in the pews don't understand that all we have is copies of copies of copies and that there's you know the science of textual criticism and all that kind of stuff so and translations of translations of translations right, right. and so inerrancy to me was never an argument that i really weighed heavy on you know because it's just like well we don't even have the originals and we've got copies of copies of copies. And, you know, now my, now my view has probably shifted in terms of, uh, and, and the point I want to get to is that, you know, how, how many thousands of times when you're arguing with the evangelicals, have you heard, well, that's not biblical, right? As though there's one, uh, one way to interpret the Bible with a evangelical hermeneutic and and if you do that evangelical hermeneutic correctly then you'll you'll arrive at their conclusion too and there's not a lot of room to argue about it right and so we're biblical and you're not and all streams of christianity throughout christian history are not biblical we've finally arrived at the right biblical hermeneutic at the right time in the history of the world to conclude that we've got the corner on the truth market with our her hermeneutic <laughs> And, you know, when you talk about what's biblical, it's just like, well, there's thousands of things that are biblical. And a lot of times they don't even agree with each other. And, you know, um, and then and then there's some things that I think evangelicals hold to, like the doctrine of inspiration and the doctrine of inerrancy that actually aren't biblical. And I even hate I hate to use that. I hate to throw that argument back on them, right? Because I just, right. I'm, I'm more about Hebrew midrash stuff. You know, I was doing my, yeah. my PhD in the Hebrew Bible, and I came to really value the more uh, reformed approaches to rabbinic interpretation of, of the Hebrew Bible, right? And I thought that's really, I mean, if you look at how Jesus and Paul did hermeneutics, yeah. The Hebrew Bible, if you look at how Ecclesiastes is a midrash on the Cain and Abel story within the Hebrew Bible, uh, all of a sudden you start realizing that like this evangelical doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy really aren't biblical. <laughs> yeah. 
and, but it's been forced yeah. on the text, right? And yeah. there's lots of things like that, right? So I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I loved what your your comments on the history of the Bible, and you seem to lean into like a Wesleyan quadrilateral approach to the the ways to use the scripture and that kind of thing. I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I I would um I would say that in retrospect, uh, fundamentalist and evangelical biblicism or inerrantism was an effort to patch an epistemological problem. Basically, we we all know in the modern world, it's hard not to know about diversity of opinion, about the way texts are read differently by different people, about the different interpretations, hundreds of different interpretations of doctrinal points or even biblical passages, and that there's plenty of people who don't believe any of that Christian stuff at all, including people who once were Christians. Um, I would say, because there is no shared epistemology in the modern world, uh, it's easy for people to feel like they're floating in midair without certainty about things that are really important. Um, God, reality, humanity, right and wrong. And so I think that Biblical infallibility or inerrancy was an effort to uh, nail certainty to the wall with a doctrine about the Bible. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it, it even went it went further. Even the Lutheran Reformation, you know, sola scriptura. I mean, basically, the idea is that was that. Catholic tradition had gotten out of hand. Let's go back to more core biblical ideas or practices. But that didn't have to lead to inerrantism. Inerrantism is a brittle effort to nail certainty to the wall. But then it's so brittle that it is so easily melt, like it breaks on contact with different accounts of the resurrection or competing strands of ideas in the Bible. Um, or arguments within the text. How about Paul versus James on works and faith, right? Yeah. Um, uh, or the criteria for salvation, I think, look pretty different in the Sermon on the Mount than they do in Romans. Right. And, um, but that could not be acknowledged. Yeah, you had to, you had to harmonize everything. Had to harmonize everything. You could not be acknowledged because it was too dangerous. Yeah. And many people lost their faith entirely, smart kids, smart adults, because either life did not cohere with their interpretation of the Bible or the Bible itself did not cohere with the doctrine of inerrancy. Mm -hmm. So we lost a lot of casualties completely unnecessarily. So in the book, I basically say, are there other models for reading the Bible? Yeah, there are lots of other models. Yes, yes. You know, the lectionary approach of the Catholic Church where you're you're constantly served uh, meals of curated texts and you you try to listen for what God wants to say through those texts. Mm -hmm. Right. Doesn't have to be inerrant to be able to do that. Right. Or the Midrash uh, Jewish tradition of argument and questioning and dialogue and a vigorous debate over the meaning and interpretation of a text, which could include setting aside a, a Hebrew Bible text and saying, now, nah, well, it does say that we cannot read that this way now, and we're going to have to read it a different way. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, we just can't because it's too harmful. Genocide yeah. passages in Joshua. Can't. Yeah. Right. right? Um, so I argue in after evangelicalism for a communal, you might say communal midrashic kind of, uh, yeah. paradigm. It's something like that. Together in community, right that, David, I like yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Together in community, we engage the text with respect, but in conversation. And we listen to all the texts, and sometimes we're going to argue with them. Sometimes we're going to just say, yes, that is true. That is so true. Um, some, some texts will speak to us at different times in our life more than others will. Sometimes we'll read the same text in different ways, 10 years apart. Um, so I think you're not church if you're not engaging scripture but you don't have to engage scripture in an inerrantist way in fact i don't think it's sustainable 
Yeah. And I, I honestly, and I, like I say, I hate even saying this, but it's not even biblical. <laughs> right. I mean, um, you know, people go for second Timothy three, right? All scriptures inspired by God, et cetera. But even that um, word theonustus, whatever it is, you right. know, uh, yeah, what does that mean? Exactly? What the hell that means. <laughs> right. You know, um, so this is an example where I think evangelicals had an opportunity to nuance the, the inerrantism that came out of the, especially out of the reformed strand of, and just general biblical fundamentalist strand of the tradition, the relatively new tradition. That wasn't what the early church fathers taught. It wasn't what, no. I don't think it's what Luther taught. Certainly not what the Catholic church has, has taught. Um, I mean, allegory you know, they, would have been the yeah, yeah. approach. Analogical or allegorical or whatever. It's mm -hmm. not what the Eastern Orthodox have done. But I, I often say that fundamentalism became a backwater in which it was not engaging those other ideas and other strains of tradition that were much older than fundamentalism itself was. Absolutely. Yeah. And we got inerrantism, which led a lot of smart 20-year-olds to run into faith and science problems or you know, theodicy problems or, or even, well, why do these two stories conflict? Yep. Can't tell you. Don't ask that question. Don't <laughs> doubt. Trust the Bible. Trust God. Trust the pastor. Or if you read some of Calvin's uh, commentaries and how he gets around free will on certain passages, it's like, it's like the most contorted <laughs> exegesis yeah. ever read sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I like, I like, the text or actually understanding the text is a collection of texts. Yeah. It's a library of texts written by a lot of different people, edited by a lot of different hands over a lot of centuries with a lot of different visions. And that is the imperfect, but lovely, generally lovely, not always legacy of the communities of faith that we are the latest generation of. That's the way to think about it. I, think. I love that. I love that. Let's talk about sex. Sure. <laughs> So I I'll, I'll, I realized that I bought into a what I now call a shame-based sexual ethic as a very young teenager. Like you, so this this the sex ex ethic that I bought into was this: God made sex, and if you're in a heterosexual marriage, you can do it. But if you're not in a heterosexual marriage, you can't do it, and you can't think about it. So like I was taught that every sexual thought I had was lust, that masturbation was lust, that you had to wait till you get married to have sex. And then even within marriage, you, you, you could only think about sex as it related to your wife. And, you know, yeah. and so, um, and my point is that it like, so to make human beings guilty and ashamed of being human is basically what happens yeah. and then you go how many people on the planet throughout history has that sexual ethic worked for and it's it's not that many <laughs> i mean right. even most of my right. Baptist friends had sex before they got married they just don't admit it but um right. you know and so we hide everything and we don't talk about these things and and it's hard i've my conclusion it's not only harmful to the lgbtq plus community which has been horrifically harmful right. But it's even harmful to it's been, it's been harmful to me to try to live and 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 I tried to wrap I I say now I tried to wrap that turd up in as much grace as I could, but in the end it was just a turd, you know. And sorry if that's too crass for you, but anyway, <laughs> it's uh it, it's evocative. It's good language. It's evocative, right? Yeah. But yeah, I I you know I I was interested to read you know through your your chapter on sex, I think it's such a huge issue and the LGBTQ issue in particular is where it really hits the fan. Right. But right. man, yeah. Thanks for, I am I'm, I'm in solidarity with that LGBTQ plus community and I'm taking big hits for it. I found out now if you're an evangelical who loves LGBTQ plus people in affirming church and you do yoga and meditation, you're, you're really not a, you're, you're messing with the demons now. Clearly hellbound. Yes. Clearly, Fred. So let's just well, acknowledge that. And you know, my friends think I'm slipping off into the fires of uh, sticks. <laughs> um, I do like that the was band good, sticks, you know. But anyway, no, that was a good band. That was one of my favorites. <laughs> um, 
Um, <laughs> now I'm back to the seventies in my mind. Yeah, I need yeah, to come yeah. back, but um, I argue in the book for what I call covenantal realism. Um, and in general, and this is becoming more and more clear to me. I think fundamentalism and evangelicalism succumbed to a kind of if we can wish it, we can we can demand it. Um, even you know, name it and claim it. Theology had a bit of that, didn't it? You know, um, if we can wish it, we can expect it. We can claim it. We can own it. Um, and that's you know on that wing. But I'm talking about like if we can wish for a Bible that is inerrant, we can just say it's inerrant. And if we can wish that every single person on the planet is wired to desire a member of the opposite sex, then we can demand it. Um, and if we can wish that <laughs> hormonally driven 17-year-olds would never have a sexual thought, we can demand it. Um, and if we could wish that no marriage would ever turn sour and break up, we can demand it. Um, it's a kind of an idealism about the human condition that has not been chastened by the reality of of all of our complexity and our humanity and our biologicity you might say our biology uh, and our brokenness all of it yeah um yeah. i do think that um that sex is a very powerful drive and that the entanglement of people in sexual relationships is more than bodily it's emotional usually too um and so sexual relationships need to be handled with responsibility and care yeah um and it's not just a consumer product and it's not just improv we got to have some idea of what we're doing yeah um and we need to take care of the people that we are engaging so that they are not harmed Right. Um, I like the ethic of covenant, which says the deeper the engagement with another human being, especially sexually, the deeper the commitment and the shared understanding of what that relationship is, mm -hmm. is needed. Um, and this at its core is what the best insight of at least covenantal understanding of marriage, not not, you know, property understanding of marriage or or dynastic understanding of marriage but a you know interpersonal understanding of marriage i think marriage should be a covenant between people who have come to a an agreement as to what they're going to mean to each other and what they're going to commit to each other mm -hmm. um so i do and I, because sex is powerful and has risks associated with it including pregnancy and brokenheartedness and anger and rage if things go south there need to be some behavioral norms around it. But that's a lot different from loading shame and guilt on a 16-year-old for having a sexual thought. Yeah. And, and by the way, this generation of young women talks especially about purity culture, which is the name this is given now, and how that was loaded especially on women. Uh, what are you wearing? How are you carrying yourself? If a guy has a lustful thought, it's your fault. And... So there's a quite a literature now on the purity culture side as people reflecting on the damage that that did. But but men too. Yeah. Um I've talked about for example the psychological challenge of being told that something is perverted, sinful and deeply displeasing to God on the eve of the wedding and perfectly happy and joyful and pleasing to God on the night of the wedding. Mm -hmm. And that uh, dualism became almost impossible, indeed impossible for some people psychologically to ever overcome. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Oh my gosh. There's so much damage. I, I just, you know, for lack of better terminology, shame-based sexual ethics. And then I talk about grace-based sexual ethics because we, we need healthy boundaries. We can, we could argue about what those are, but like, um, sex in the conservative church, there's a gal that was doing therapy and she was a Christian gal and, all of a sudden, all these kids that had read the Joshua Harris book, you know, uh, I kiss dating goodbye, start start flowing in and needing therapy because they have yeah. such a warped view of sexuality. And so um, here's another piece to this. Um, if you really buy in to that, then you better get married really fast. 
That's what I did. So, yeah. So <laughs> want to have sex well, before Jesus came back, you know? That's right. That's right. And you want to get married and not and not fornicate, right? right? So people, the only place in America right now where, as far as I know, where people get married under the age of 25 very often is in conservative Christian circles. Right. Um, and I knew students at my last school, Union West Tennessee, who were getting married at 19, 18, 20. And they had no business getting married. They were so not ready, but they were feeling it for each other. They wanted to get married. They wanted to have sex. And most of those marriages did not last. Yeah. Um, so also marriage. My, and you, I'm one of those examples. Mine didn't. And the, yeah. even though mine lasted 37 years, the underpinning, we never had kids. There was, you know, a lot of different elements to that. I, I don't say publicly, but uh, it in the end, it was, it it fell apart because of, you know, so I think because some of the shame-based sexual ethics that were a part of both of my wife and my heritage. Yeah. Uh, we need realism. Admit we need that today, I, so. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I said she might not say that that way today, yeah. but I, I do, you know, and yeah, uh, yeah um, it's tragic, honestly. Oh my God. It is. So I, so in 2014, I said in changing our mind, I basically, the argument is there is a reality called homosexuality or same-sex orientation and evangelicals and fundamentalists have have harmed millions of their own by refusing to acknowledge that reality by asking them to do impossible things 10 impossible things before breakfast like deny who you are deny who you're attracted to deny any sexual expression ever on the expectation the celibacy expectation right um and that this is a predictably destructive tradition that needs to be reconsidered. Um, and what I do in after evangelicalism is say, let, now let's extend that to the whole purity culture for and, and shame-based culture for heterosexuals too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of what drives people out of evangelicalism is this issue. That's absolutely the case. Yeah. And I think it's honestly, I think it's, this is maybe, this is an overstatement. It's super harmful to the heterosexual community, not just to the LGBTQ plus community. I agree. Now, the LGBTQ plus community has has taken the brunt of it, uh, I think, because they, uh, you know, the heterosexuals they just hide and deny, <laughs> and then hold right. to a, an ethic that does, that really doesn't exist or work really. Um, I mean, there's not a single evangelical dude out there or pastor anywhere that hasn't lusted his brain out, right? But they just hide it and they act like it doesn't exist, doesn't happen, and they have problems behind the scenes, and and we just don't talk about it, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, and lack of realism about uh, one's own sexuality uh, leaves leaves people vulnerable to stupid mistakes and um and crossing boundaries in professional relationships. And, you know, um, the, this literature is now talking about the link between purity culture and the sexual misconduct issues in evangelical churches as well. Mm -hmm. You cover everything up with shame. You put a lot of power in the hands of a handful of men. Uh, you give them all kinds of access to young women. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you load everything up with, um, some combination of enticement and shame, you know, it's just a, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. 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 I agree. Oh man. Well, um, yeah. And I've tried to come up with a, a new, you know, sexual ethic. We'll have to, we'll, we've got a lot to talk about David and we can't do it here, but yeah, I would, I would love to have you back on and especially after, after I get the new book read too, um, that would be awesome. Let's talk a little bit about, let's plug your new book and just okay. just a little bit while we have a few, few minutes left. Um, you're coming out with a new book called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. Yes. I'll make one quick footnote. When I was at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I loved church history and I loved ancient Near Eastern history. And both of my professors in those two realms wanted me to do PhD work with them. And I felt called to be a pastor and so moved on with the pastor world. But my, my, uh, my history professor that I loved was William Estep. 
who was yeah, one of yeah. foremost Anabaptist theologians. So I took every class with Estep that I could take. He was a legend. Yeah, dove in. You know, he translated the Schleitheim Confessions. He he did the Anabaptist story. Uh, brilliant, brilliant scholar in the Anabaptist. And I basically became a hard-leaning pacifist because of William Estep and a hardline advocate for separation of church and state and the democracy issues around that mm-hmm. based on the magisterial reformation of Europe, you know, yeah. and coming out of that mess. So yeah, talk about your defending democracy from its Christian enemies in the next few minutes here. They're well, oh, well, sweet. Um, I bought, can I order that already? Yes. Uh, okay. Out. Um, well, it, it may take a week or two to ship now. Um, its official release date is October third. Um, the The book is a reflection on what I call authoritarianism and a, and reactionary um, politics among conservative Christians in the U.S. and several other countries. Um, it's about the alarming trend um, in which many Christians in the U.S. And I have actually studied seven countries in the book, so it's not just the U.S. But many Christians are really willing to trade democracy for the kind of authoritarian Christian strongman government that they really want. Um, and so democracy, we, we have seen a, a threat to the very survival of democracy in the U.S. in the Trump years. January 6th was an apex of that. Who knows whether there'll be another one? Um, but it's the role of Christians in eating away at a 240-year-old democratic heritage in the U.S. that I'm especially targeting in this book. Um, how, how that has happened involves a fair amount of historical amnesia, not remembering the violence in the name of the, of the state, in the name of religion, not remembering all the martyrs. Um, Baptists not remembering the heritage of being killed for being Baptist. Um, uh, Baptists played a key role in demanding the separation of church and state in the U.S. Yes. Because they knew what it was like to have the state direct what your religion was going to be and require taxes and ban your pastors and kill them and exile them. And now Baptists are among those who, you know, are willing to, to reconsider that entire separation of church and state arrangement yes. and the democracy that goes with it because they're so hysterical about social changes that they don't like and about democratic outcomes that they don't prefer. Yeah. And so in the book, I say, you know, we know better than this, but we have both resources from the Bible, though they have to be carefully curated. And we have historical memory and traditions that I distill as democratic congregationalism, covenantal politics, and the black church dissenting and abolitionist tradition. Mm, mm. These are three traditions, some of them 500 years old, each of them at least 400 years old, that have that have uh, undergirded support for democracy in the U.S. and in other countries on the part of Christians. And we need to remember and reclaim those resources before we kick away the democracy that has been built up here, not perfectly by any means, but built up through blood, sweat, and tears over all these years. Yeah. So it's a diagnosis of what's gone wrong. And uh, it has speaks definitely to the Trumpist reality and the Christians who support them. But it is also uh, a, a call to retrieve our best resources. And I'd love to, when you get a chance to read the book, we can send you the galleys now. Um, to have a, a serious conversation about it. I'd love to. And I think most Americans, you know, just do not understand the magisterial reformation backdrop, right? Um, they, they just, there's too far removed from it. Hasn't been brought up in their churches. You know, you know, think about like the Anabaptist tradition, you know, yeah. Step started off his book, you know, where, you know, George Blahrock, Felix Montz and Peter Grable go down to the river and, you know, in Switzerland and break the ice and baptize each other. Yeah. Kicks off the Anabaptist movement. And within a, I think two years, all three of those guys were martyred for, for baptizing each other in the river. (laughs) Yeah. The state demanded 
uh, control of the religious life of the people and where the state included people of different populations or different religious convictions, people got murdered, martyred on a regular basis. The modern decision in the U.S. was we're not going to be anti-religious, but we're also not going to dictate any anybody's religion. Freedom of religion, freedom from religion, freedom for religion, freedom for non-religion. And the state is not the state is going to be out of that business. And that's that was the right decision. Um, but now people are, are really upset about like abortion or homosexuality or whatever, um, trans gender reality and and they want a Christian strongman like Putin in Russia or Viktor Orban in Hungary to set things right. And if you have to break a few eggs, send a few people to jail or, or undermine your democracy or constitution, so be it. That is in the air. Yep. And uh, and it's time for a strong pushback, a principled pushback on the basis of our own best heritage. That's what this book is about. Yeah, man, I love that. That's so, so critical i think for you know this point in time oh gosh how crazy you know and i i, I was i had a podcast with uh frank schaefer uh, yeah i knew uh, him yeah yeah and um frank frank right yeah the son uh yeah frankie frank, i think he went frank, by yeah. At least and, I yeah and um you know he asked me he had me on his podcast too and he was asking me you know you know, basically you, you as an evangelical and then starting a church and building a mega church, you know, like you contributed to this. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I, I didn't see it that way. You know, I didn't, and I wouldn't have even predicted this coming. I, I always leaned hard to separation of church and state and leaned hard toward pacifism. And, you know, I, you know, I don't own a gun. You know what I mean? Like I, like I, like Jesus to me isn't a gun toter. You know, that's going to blow people away if they don't disagree with him. You know, kind of deal. Right. And uh, I just didn't see. I didn't believe that the evangelicalism that I thought I was a part of would have ever turned into the Trumpism of what's present today. I yeah. didn't see it coming. It surprised yeah. me. Now, when I read your stuff, when I read, you know, Jesus and John Wayne, when I read. Frank stuff, I realized, yeah, I, I probably should have seen it coming, but I really well, did. It's evolved, though, too. Um, you know, the 80s and 90s Christian right was a democratic political movement. I mean, they they were organizing to get Republican politicians elected and to get laws passed and, and such. In other words, they believed in the democratic process and they thought they could win in that process. And sometimes they did win. Um, but my my analysis is that they did not get everything they wanted through the democratic process um and trump came along and he offered them both some symbolic and policy victories that they had not gotten elsewhere and when he went i mean from the beginning he sounded anti-democratic notes like lock her up and you know enemy of the people and all that when um as he moved in an increasingly authoritarian and anti-democratic direction, they followed him right off the cliff. Mm -hmm. People like Eric Metaxas, for example. Yes. You know, and so, so it's, it's and not. What a, what a creative interpretation of Bonhoeffer, right? Anyway. I know, yeah. So like, it's not exactly <laughs> that the Christian right of the Francis Schaeffer senior generation yeah. is the same as what we're seeing today. Yeah. Because. Because history evolves and influence of individuals. Um, as Trump increasingly began seething with threats of violence and the movement began developing paramilitaries and, you know, armed guns and gangs and stuff, proud boys. And, and in other words, it evolved. Mm -hmm. But Christians of good conscience should know where boundary lines are. Mm. And many Christians blew right through those boundary lines because their hero did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. Okay. We're out of time. Okay. Let's tell people how they can find your website, your books, and we'll, I would, I'll read your new book. And if you'll, if you'll let me, I'll have you back on and we'll talk more. Sure. Um, davidpgushy.com is my website. Uh, it's the middle initial davidpgushy.com. Um, 
I have uh, Substack and um, social media almost always under at DP Gushy. It's an unusual name. So if you look up Gushy, you almost certainly will find me. So DP Gushy on Instagram. And I think I have a YouTube channel now, <laughs> uh, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, DavidPGushy.com. And there's the book. If you can, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see his book cover, the spelling G U S H E E and, uh, excellent, excellent. But, and you've, you've, you've published a lot of books. Um, and, uh, I'd really thank you so much, David. This has been delightful. Thank you, Fred. Good to, good to be with you. And, um, I would enjoy another conversation. Uh, we'll send you the galleys. I can get Erdman's to send you the galleys and, we could do more on after evangelicalism too, because we there's a lot we didn't talk about. But yeah. totally up to you. Let's do it. All right. Thank you, David. Thanks everybody for tuning in. If you made it all the way to the end of this episode, I'm proud of you. Way to go. Jump over to spiritualityadventures.com. Check out uh becoming a part of our support team. We'd greatly appreciate it. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next time. Have a great day. Take care. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com, sign up for one of our monthly supports, and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I wanna encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.